Hey, what's up, 11 o'clock? How are we doing, Rocky Peak? And, and I apologize, but God bless you, sir, for wearing a 49er shirt. That is amazing. Hey, it is good to be with you once again. Welcome to the last weekend service of the decade, as unbelievable as that sounds. If you are here at Rocky Peak for the very first time, sincerely, I am so glad you're here and we get to spend the service time together. My name is Dre. I'm one of the pastors here at Rocky Peak, and we're going to go into our time of teaching. And I got to tell you before we jump in, I am really excited about our passage this morning. Several months ago, back in early September, just in my own one-on-one time, the Lord used today's passage to not only really speak to me, but to humble me and grow me in some new and spectacular ways. So I'm excited with you as my family that we get to jump in together and get to learn alongside one another this morning. And so with that, if you open up those programs you got on your way in, inside you're going to find a green and white message note sheet, which as we often say is a great tool to help you follow along with this time of teaching. It's also a great tool I like to provide some white space for you to be able to jot down anything the Holy Spirit is specifically prompting you to remember during this time. I'm going to pray, and we're going to dive right in. Jesus, it's wonderful to to end one year and to start a new year by gathering as family and friends and opening up your word. Jesus, as we look back in the fact that we are leaving the Christmas holiday But I pray that together we not be people that leave the Jesus that the holiday represents. That because the lights are coming down and the trees are going away doesn't mean that the miracle is any less true. And so as we look back on this last year, as we look back on this last decade, we might see successes, we might see joys, but we also see pain, suffering, unexpected issues that pop up. But I pray that as we look back, we also see you through it all. And as we look forward and we make plans or resolutions, as we sometimes fearfully wonder, what does the next year or 10 years have for us? May we look forward with a hope knowing the same Jesus that has been is the one that will be wherever we go. And so as we open up your word this morning, as I often like to say, I pray that I as the communicator, we become much, much less than the beautiful example of John the Baptist. And I pray that you, our king, would become more in our focus. And it's in your name that we all said, amen. Amen. Now, I'm really excited because this morning we are kicking off a brand new series. It's a mini-series, a two-week series to get us ready for a brand new year, and it's called Control. And over these next two weeks, what we're going to do is we're really going to examine the question of who is in control of your life. Now, if you're here this morning and you are a Christ follower, often the easy answer would be to say, well, Jesus is in control of my life. And throughout this series, I want to take that question one further and ask, who is really in control of your life? And so to understand the heart about this a little bit more, what I want to do is I want to start off by talking about something that is near and dear to my heart, something that is absolutely precious, and that is the 1985 film, Back to the Future. (laughs) 
If you are a long-time Rocky Peak goer, you know that this is on my top five all-time favorite movies. And some of you might remember that I've mentioned in the past that for a large portion of my childhood, I wanted to be a scientist for the sole reason of one day creating a working DeLorean time machine. Now, the reason I bring this movie up is that throughout the movie, Michael J. Fox's character, Marty, he's trying to get back to his time. And one of the various MacGuffins he uses in the movie, do you remember he has a photograph? It's a photograph of him and his siblings, and he's often looking at the photograph to see how much time he has left. But in essence, the whole plot of this movie is that he is trying to get back to that image. That photo represents his life, and he wants to get back to his life as captured in that snapshot. And I bring it up because that is a wonderful metaphor for how so many of us choose to live our lives today. See, whether we realize it or not, we often create a snapshot of our lives. But unlike in the movie, it's not a snapshot of something that is already happening. Our snapshot is future focused. Our snapshot is an image of what we want our lives to become, what we want to see our lives transformed into. And often our snapshot contains great things. In our snapshots contains our hope of what we want to see our relationships become, whether it's romantic relationships, whether it's friendships, whether it's church community relationships, or those with our family and our kids. Often in our snapshots, it contains our hope of what's going to happen to us financially or in our careers or the type of house and living situation we're going to have. Often our snapshots contain the way we want to grow spiritually as believers, what we want to see happen in our discipline or in our relationship with God. Often our snapshots are focused on very good things. And another way of saying it is that our snapshots become our roadmaps for transformation. This ideal photo is what I want my life to become, what I want my life to be transformed into. And so what do we do? We then develop the plan. I am now going to focus all of my energies, all of my time, all of my resources to achieve this plan, to make it to this snapshot. Now, on your note sheets, I included a quote from a woman named Catherine Wolfe. Now, over the last several months, Catherine and her husband Jay have become heroes of mine, even though I haven't met them in person. And they raised this question of what happens when life doesn't cooperate with the plan. Because as they write in their book, Hope Heals, when they were 26, I want to say, their snapshot drastically changed as Catherine suffered a massive spinal stroke. And she writes there in your note sheet, I imagine most of us have fairly straightforward pictures in our head about what our lives will look like and who we will become. These pictures are mostly of wonderful things that happen at exactly the right time and make oh so much sense. When something happens that is not inside the four corners of that picture, we view it as a detour and hope to get back on track as quickly as possible. So what happens when you take a detour and can't ever get back 
to the original path again. And this raises a really important question for us. How do you respond when life does not cooperate with your plan? How do you respond when life throws the unexpected at you, and like she said, feels as if it's tugging and trying to take away at your snapshot, whether it's unexpected delays, whether it's unexpected challenges, unexpected loss, whatever it may be, how do you respond to that? Well, if you're anything like me, you fight, right? If you're like me, we don't take this laying down. We go, no, this is the plan, and it is a good plan. And so we're going to fight to get our plan, to get life back on track. And so if you're a believer here this morning, let me take it one step further. How do you react when Jesus does not cooperate with your plan? How do you react when it's Jesus who is tugging at this picture, when it's Jesus himself who is taking away that picture and he's handing you a new one that in small ways or in radical ways can be different or even unrecognizable to the one you had before. And again, if you're like me, Christ follower, what happens is we don't take that lightly, do we? we now engage in a power struggle with the king of kings. And once again, it raises the question I opened our time with, who is really in control of your life? Family, it's one thing with our words to say Jesus is in control, but it is an entirely different thing with our actions and our lives to actually let go and submit to his leadership. If you've ever or are struggling with that power struggle right now, you are not a horrible person. You are normal and you are in good company. And that's what the series is all about the truth is we all desire transformation, but the reason why so many of us don't experience true transformation is because we try to be in control of that process rather than letting Jesus do what he does best. In fact, if we're honest, what we call transformation, what we want to control is only skin deep. See, God, right, language we use often at Rocky Peak is that God has an epic vision for each one of your lives, and that is a vision of deep and eternal transformation that begins from the insight and then, insight and then overflows into every part of our outside world. And so as we go into these next two weeks, we want to present the opportunity that if you want 2020 to be a year of substantial spiritual growth, it is going to happen by at the beginning committing to letting go of control and letting God do what he does best. There in your note sheet, I like how the words of Jesus sum this up in Matthew 10, 39. This is a deeply personal scripture to me because this was the scripture that led me to the Lord many years ago. Jesus says that whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake, meaning gives up control to him, will find it. And so to unpack this further, we need to a deeper view of what transformation actually is, this vision God has for us. And so if you're following along in your note sheet, 
You've got a section titled, The Unexpected Transformation. And we're going to spend some time this morning in the first half of our Bible, what's called the Old Testament, in the book of 2 Kings chapter 5. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up. If you've got your apps, turn them on. Again, we're going to 2 Kings chapter 5. Now, before we fully jump in, much like we did in our previous series, Prophets, Priests, and Kings, I want to start off by giving us a little bit of context. And you see there in your note sheet, I've provided a simple, what I call, cheat sheet. Now, the reason why often at Rocky Peak we like to start our time in Scripture with context is because our passion and our desire as we share Scriptures is to give you the tools and equipment to be able to handle Scriptures well in your own one-on-one time. And so that's why we focus a lot on context, because it's through context that we develop a connection with Scripture in two key ways. We develop an intellectual connection, but we also develop an emotional connection as we see how relevant these words are to our lives today, particularly when it comes to the Old Testament, that sometimes in certain Christian circles, there is a myth that for believers in 2020, the Old Testament does not hold any relevance, when the opposite is true. If you were with us in our previous series, did you not see as I saw that the Old Testament is amazingly relevant to our lives today? The entire Bible matters, and that's why we teach the way we do here. And so if you look there on your, on your cheat sheet, I'm flipping the order a little bit. One of our key players in this account is the prophet Elisha. This is happening during his ministry, and I'm just briefly calling attention to that because he's already been introduced in our story. He is the successor to the prophet Elijah and plays a key role in the first 10, 12, 13 chapters of 2 Kings. But the second thing that a piece of context I want to give you is that we're dealing with the king, a foreign kingdom of Aram, the Arameans. Now, we are in a period in the kingdom era that's called the divided kingdom, in which Israel had split into two separate kingdoms. And so our account is taking place in the northern kingdom, what retained the name of Israel. And again, throughout this last series, we saw that that often God's people broke their covenant with him. They often broke their promises and abandoned their relationship with him. And so God would often raise up foreign empires to carry out his judgment against them. And one of these empires is the Arameans. In fact, throughout the entire kingdom era, we see them as enemies of God's people. At the time of the United Kingdom, King David and King Solomon fought against the Arameans. When the kingdom split, they were a constant enemy to the northern kingdom. In fact, there's a period where the Arameans joined forces with the southern kingdom to fight against the north. Now, as our account begins, we are in a very tense ceasefire. Now, that word isn't entirely accurate because the Arameans are still carrying out raids and pillaging of the northern kingdom. But we are in a tense ceasefire, and it's key to understand that context as we begin our passage together. And so 2 Kings 5, starting at verse 1, and as I often say, if you've got a pen and a physical Bible handy, if you've got the highlight function on your apps, get it all ready because we're going to mark this up. Verse 1, now Naaman, would you underline that name? Naaman, he is our second key player in this account. 
Now, Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Would you underline that last word, leprosy? Now, let's unpack what's happening here. So, we are introduced to Naaman, and briefly but significantly, we are given a very good resume. In essence, he is the right-hand man of the king of Aram. He is a great general, a great war hero. He has achieved fame and fortune and privilege. And again, in context, how has he done this? At the expense of Israel. He has achieved his greatness by conquering and making the northern kingdom suffer. But the second thing we're told is that he is suffering from leprosy. Now, in the original languages the Bible is written, in the Hebrew and the Greek, the word leprosy is actually a general word to refer to a variety of different illnesses or skin ailments. It can refer to what so many of us picture, deep cuts, deep boils, deterioration, where even things atrophy and fall off. But it can also refer to uh, skin conditions that are topical in nature and not life-threatening, whether it's different pigmentation issues or discoloring. Now, what we are not told is specifically what the issue is. But what we do see is that whatever it was, it mattered to name it. In fact, I will go one step forward. Whatever it is, it scares Naaman. Because as we're going to see, he is desperate to deal with this. Now, before we leave this, one other point I want to make is that for all of Naaman's renowned fame, power, resources, privilege, what have you, the unexpected reared its head and it has rendered him absolutely powerless. Can you relate? When life is going according to plan and the unexpected trial and suffering rears its ugly head and all of a sudden you don't know what to do. Your strategies, your strengths, your good ideas, none of it is working and you feel powerless. That's the situation we're dealing with here. And so as we continue in verse two, now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl. Would you underline that? Young girl, because she's another key player in our account, from Israel and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria. She's talking about Elisha in Israel. He would cure him of his leprosy. Verse four, Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. 
So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Now there is actually a lot there that we need to unpack. The first thing is we need to talk about this young girl. Now let's make no mistake about it. She is a slave in the service of the Aramean kingdom. She is an Israeli girl who has been forcibly taken from her homeland and is now forcibly given the job of serving in Naaman's household. She has been taken by her enemies and is being forced to work for their good. Now, we're not told specifically how she came to know of Naaman's condition. My guess, and that's all it is, is a guess, is that this was such a big deal, such an unexpected situation that it required the focus of the entire household. Again, we can relate to that, can't we? That there are times when unexpected suffering comes up and it becomes the priority and the focus of us and those around us as we ask, what are we going to do? How are we going to deal with this? And I want to make a quick sidebar here that many of you are living in a situation similar to that right now. That for whatever reason, you are dealing with unexpected suffering, whether it's physical and health, whether it's relational, situational, or a combination nation of every which way. And if that is you, I want to remind you that you are safe here. You can be honest of your hurting. And that is what we become as the community of God. As I've mentioned before, as I heard it said, we are not a museum for the perfect, but we are a home for the broken. And so, A lowly servant girl is an unexpected source of direction and wisdom, isn't she? But she presents a solution, and Naaman and the king run with it. Now, before we leave this, I want to focus in deeply on one other thing about this young woman. And this is not a sidebar. This is part of our primary principle today. As believers... Today, in 2020, in our lives, living in the country we're living, we would benefit greatly as the church of Jesus if we followed the example set by this servant girl. And what I mean by that is Naaman and the Arameans were her clear enemy. It couldn't get any clearer. They took her and are forcing her to work. They want to destroy her people and her culture and her background. Common sense and logic would say that she should be celebrating the suffering of her enemy. And many of us would say she would be justified in that. But what does she do instead, she shows her deep devotion to the Lord God because she loves in a way that only God can love. She loves in a way that only happens through true transformation. And what's beautiful is she is a model for the type of transformation that God offers each and every one of us right now. Rhetorically, can you currently love your enemies as she does? 
Can you love those on the other side of politics than you as she does? Can you love those on the other side of social issues as she does? Can you love those who passionately and vehemently oppose the truth of Jesus as she does? And again, the beauty of the Old Testament is she is not a unique case. When we look at what's called the exile of God's people being conquered over and over again, we see Daniel, we see Ezra, we see Nehemiah, we see godly exiles who care for both the spiritual and the physical well-being of those that conquered them. This is what we are called to, and this is what happens when we give God control and he transforms us from the inside out. Now, the king responds well because it's in his best interest to make sure Naaman is healed, right? He doesn't want to lose his best soldier. And so he approaches this in a way that makes sense, diplomatic relations. He writes a kingly letter. He sends a gift. But do you notice in the context of the letter, it's not asking, it's demanding. Heal my servant. And so let's look at how the king of Israel responded to this. Verse 7, as soon as the king of Israel read this letter, he tore his robes. If you remember, that's a sign of great distress. And he said, am I God? Would you underline that? Specifically, he is referring to Yahweh. Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. He is convinced this is a trap. He is convinced that the Arameans are putting him in an impossible situation that they know he can't do. And because he can't do it, it will justify them going to war with Israel. Verse 8, when Elisha the man of God heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes. He sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. Would you underline that? A prophet in Israel. The role of the prophets and honestly the role of believers today is in everything we say and do to point people to our awesome God. And so when Elisha says, send him to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel, it's another wording of saying, send him to me, and he will know that there is one God, and he is king. But you know what's fascinating to me? is this king, like many of the kings in the kingdom era, was not what we would call a pro-Yahweh king. He was a Baal worshiper. There were times when he hunted the prophets of God and shed their blood because they spoke truth. And as his back's against the wall, what does he do? He acknowledges truth. Only God can control life and death. I do not have that power. And so, as we continue to read in verse 9, 
So Naaman went with his horses and chariots, and whether it's this size or not, I like the picture that there's essentially a rose parade that is following him everywhere. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. Verse 11, but Naaman went away angry. Would you underline that? Angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, where he's from, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned off and went. So he turned and went off in a rage. Okay, this is awesome. Naaman is told, go see Elisha. Now, whether or not Elisha was home, Elisha sends his messenger to greet Naaman with instructions. In essence, his messenger goes, oh, you're the leprosy guy, right? Just go to the, road, go to the Jordan, dip yourself seven times, and you're all going to be taken care of. It's simple instructions, right? And Naaman is angry. Why? Because this is not his plan. This is not the snapshot he had of how this is going to work. Remember, Naaman is a great man. And so he expects great things. He expects this renowned, holy prophet of God to come out and wave his hands and chant holy chants and throw spiritual confetti over him and to do a lot of pomp and circumstance. And so what brought Naaman to the point of being in Israel was desperation, right? But he reached a turning point in his desperation that this was not going according to his plan. And so what do we see in him? Something many of us have experienced ourselves, that often our desperation has limits. The instructions were simple. Listen and follow and things will be good. And the response is, that is not my plan. So I don't want to do this. I often use the phrase that it would be so easy to get judgy towards Naaman, right? But I have to open up my heart and admit that Naaman is me. Naaman is us, isn't he? that we want transformation. We ask God to transform our lives, to lead us. We say, God, I want to listen and follow to you. But have you noticed, Christ follower, that God rarely follows our plans for transformation? Have you experienced times in your life when you have said, God, I want you to transform and change my circumstances? And God's response is, I want to transform and change your heart. First, 
Have you experienced times in which you are pleading with God, God, I have no more patience. I don't know how much more I can take. I don't know if I can handle this burden. And God's response is, it's still going to take longer than you think. Have you experienced times when you've asked God to provide, whether it's financially or resources, whether it's support in some way? You ask God, please give me what I think I need. And God's response is to take away more first. Have you had situations where you plead to God, please, my life has been a disaster. Can I have a moment of peace? And instead, he leads to more suffering. Have you had a time where you've said, God, I want this person I love or this person who is my enemy to come and know that you are God, to have their life change. And instead, God goes, that is amazing, but I want to deal with the sin in your heart first. And when we encounter the unexpected, it can be easy to respond like Naaman, can't it? That we get angry at God. Really? You're not going to do it. You're not going to care. You're not going to provide. You're not going to get me out of this. And like Naaman, in our anger over the control issues, there is a temptation to quit on God. If this is how you're going to be, then I'm done. I am not going to listen and follow because this is not working out for my life. And again, what are we going to see in our account? That God does not do the unexpected to mess with us. God does not do the unexpected because he is unfeeling or unmoved by our suffering. But God often works in the unexpected because what he desires for us is much deeper and bigger than we can possibly imagine. And so as we continue in our camp, verse 13, Naaman's servants went to him and said, my father, a term of respect, If the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? Again, hey, healing is simple. Just listen and follow. So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored. It became clean like that of a young boy. And so once again, the unexpected truth and wisdom of God comes from the, quote, lowly servants and they speak wisdom to this, quote, great man. And so Naaman goes, and he actually does what the prophet said. Now, several months ago, I heard a friend of mine preaching on this passage, and he asked a really good question. If you are Naaman's servants, what are you thinking the first six times? (laughs) Like, how hard are your fingers crossed at that point? Let's go one step further. If you're Naaman... What are you thinking those first six times? If it's you, what would you be thinking those first six times? I think the answer to that question would be different depending on who is answering it, but for me, I'm pretty sure knowing my pride, I would be angrier and angrier each time. And what happens on the seventh? 
exactly what God said would happen. And look at the response. Verse 15, the Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, now I know. Would you underline that? Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. I think what is beautiful about this is that Naaman returns to Elisha and he doesn't focus or celebrate on the physical healing that he has, uh, that he has received, but instead he focuses and celebrates that he got something much bigger that he ever bargained for, and that is that he learned that God is real, that God is king, that God is in control, and that is a beautiful place to be. Nothing about this went according to Naaman's plan, did it? If he had gotten his way, what would he have received? He either would have received nothing because he would have stormed off or he would have gotten a skin-deep healing. Instead, by doing this God's way, albeit kicking and screaming, he experienced an epic and an eternal transformation. And so as we continue in verse 16, the prophet answered, as surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. Bro, that's not what I do this for. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. Verse 17, if you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, would you underline that? Your servant be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimnon, which is an Aramean version of Baal, to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also, when I bow down to the temple of Rimnon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Verse 19, go in peace, Elisha said. And so that's where we're going to close here. But again, this beauty continues that Naaman knows nothing is ever going to be the same again. And he knows his heart can't go back to the way things are. And so his focus and priority is now that I've encountered the Lord God, Yahweh Most High, how do I continue to worship him wherever I go? And he starts by asking, can I take back the dirt from Israel because there is no place in my land to worship the Lord God and I want to make one. And then secondly, he asked this very complicated situational issue that I'm the king's right-hand man and we do political worship. Like, what do I do in this situation? Because I can't exactly stop, but I'm completely changed. And so Elisha's declaration of go in peace is the Lord declaring, Naaman, God knows your heart and God knows your new loyalty. And I had you underline your servant. Think about how radical Naaman's transformation is that in this moment, as a new believer, so to speak, the first thing he does is places himself under the authority of God. God is in control. 
And that is the most beautiful place I can be. And so that's our passage today. And so as I've been encouraging you a lot lately, I would love to ask you that sometime in the next 24 hours, now that we've unpacked it, would you find some one-on-one time, some unrushed time in which you just sit down with this passage on your own and just read it and let the Lord speak to you through it. But for the time that we have left, what I want to do is as we have a deeper view of transformation, I want to unpack two key truths that we learn from the account of Naaman and Elisha. So there in Enochi, you've got a section titled Experiencing True Transformation. And your fill-in is this. Transformation requires Jesus to be in control. Transformation requires Jesus to be in control. And again, this fill-in leads us back to the question I started our time with. Who is really in control of your life? And to begin letting go and letting Jesus take control, one of the most important steps is that we need to acknowledge a difficult truth to accept And that's that even as Christ followers, we have been transformed and renewed by the work of Jesus. But as long as we are on this side of heaven, we are still struggling with a sin, rebellious nature. And as Michael often puts it, it is our sin nature that wants to lead us to the dark side that wants to lead us to opposition, that wants to lead us back to the kingdom that we came from when we submitted to Jesus. And one of the key ways sin does this is through our pride, through trying to convince us you know better than God when it comes to your life. God is too busy. God doesn't care. God's way is filled with too much suffering. Don't trust him. Trust your instincts. Trust yourself. You will be better off. And to really unpack this, I want to ask you a question. This is a question I've asked over the years in different forms in several different ways. It might be familiar to some of you, but it's a rhetorical question, and it's this. How old were you when you first realized that you are right about everything? Now, I'm approaching this with humor, but you got to admit there's a lot of truth to that, isn't there? That our pride brings us to a point of realization that, you know what? If everyone would just listen to what I have to say, if everyone would just agree and carry out my opinions and ideals, this world would be a much better place. And there are areas in our life through due to strengths, abilities, learnings, experience, whatever it is that we do have good authority to speak into. But when we look at our pride, there are areas in our life and in our world that we have no business speaking into. And yet our pride convinces us that we are experts. Let me illustrate this. I was speaking with my mother-in-law recently, and I love my mother-in-law. And one of my favorite things to do with my mother-in-law is we like to talk about current events. And I don't remember how we got on this topic, but the issue of Brexit came up. 
Are you familiar with Brexit? It's England leaving the European Union. And as it came up, she asked, you know, I've heard this term before, but I'm not fully sure what it all entails. Now, I don't remember if it was that day, but somewhere recently, I had read a long, detailed news article that was talking about what Brexit is, what has been the timeline, what have been the challenges on both sides of the issues, what are challenges moving forward, and I'm not being facetious when I say I understood about 2% of that article. And that 2% is this, England is a country. That is all I got. (laughs) And yet in this moment, I began to take my 2% and explain to my mother-in-law what Brexit is. Now, that's prideful to begin with, but it gets worse. Because as I'm explaining this to her, my pride kicks in. And as I'm saying this, all of a sudden, I am seeing solutions. All of a sudden, I am figuring out how to solve this. And the prideful phrase is, you know what they should do? You know what would help, or here's the kicker, you know what I would do? Now again, what do I know about Brexit? England is a country. What else do I know about England? They have crumpets. I have no idea what that is. Now again, we see the absurdity of that, right? Family, that is often how we approach Jesus. If we are radically honest with ourselves, we understand how little of life we have any sort of control over. If we are honest with ourselves, we understand how limited our vision is And yet, we take our 2% and we vehemently fight with Jesus. We vehemently demand him to submit to the 2% that we can see. And so if we truly want to be a people who are giving up control, it doesn't just happen. It doesn't happen simply because I speak it to happen. If we want to be a people who truly let go, it requires intentionality. And not an intentionality that develops more things to do, but an intentionality that develops our heart and our character under the leadership of Jesus. And what do we see through this account with Naaman and Elisha? That if we want to experience transformation, the very requirement of transformation is the characteristic of humility. Would you write that down? We need humility. Again, if you were with us during prophets, priests, and kings, humility came up a lot, didn't it? And as we talked about, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is not you saying, I am the worst person ever. I have no strengths. I have no gifts. I have nothing to offer people or Jesus or his kingdom. That is not what humility is at all. 
in beautiful humility, you can celebrate strengths and successes and what the Lord is doing in victory. Humility is the beautiful declaration, like Naaman did, that there is one God and I'm not him. Humility is joyfully understanding that he is in control. I am not. And though I can't see, I will trust in him. And one key thing to know is humility is not weakness, but humility is strength. The example of the life of Jesus is an example of how strong humility is. It was through the strength of Jesus' humility that he defeated sin and death. It is through the strength of the humility of Jesus that empires, political powers, oppressions are brought down. How did God upset the political system of the Arameans? He didn't rise up a conquering force in Israel. He changed the heart of a key player and sent him back with the power of humility. It is through the strength of Jesus' humility that he takes the dead and raises them back to life. If we are going to experience true transformation, it is in the development of humility as a core character of our lives. And how do we develop this? It's by shifting our focus. We are all too often focused on the plan, on what needs to change, on how to get there. And it's not that we ignore it, but we need to shift our primary focus from the plan to who Jesus is, who he has always been, who he will always be. And that's developed in our one-on-one -on -one relationship with him. Now, later on, I'm going to go more practical into that. But there in your note sheet, I put some scriptures out of Colossians 3, which is a beautiful reminder to me in my life of what I'm supposed to be focused on. The apostle says, since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life? I love that. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The essential requirement to experience transformation is a humility that declares that Jesus is king. That even though I don't know where we're going and I can't see, and frankly, I disagree, I will trust because I know who you are. And that is essential as we deal with the second truth we learn from this passage, and this fill -in, that's your fill-in. Transformation happens in unexpected ways. Transformation happens in unexpected ways. And family, this is a truth that is really hard for me to accept. 
This is a truth that for many of us, in varying degrees based on our wiring, can be really hard for us to accept. There's many of you here that are wired similarly to me, that we are what I affectionately call the control freaks. We don't like surprises. We have a plan for everything. And so we have a tendency, even in the beauty and strength of that, to feel this conflicted rub a little bit sooner than maybe those around us. But there are also many of you here that are wired, like my wife, who's my hero, that she is much more free when it comes to that. That she is better equipped than me at times to pivot or to change. But even if that's your wiring, you know that there are times, whether it's seasons or whether it's specific issues or relationships in which God working in the unexpected is a huge trial and difficult to accept. And regardless of how you're wired, when God is rubbing us the wrong way because he is working in the unexpected, we may look back and hope and declare, okay, God, you worked in the unexpected and that's your one. After this, get back on the plan. It worked for you this one time, congratulations. But moving forward, you need to go back to the plan. And when God doesn't, because he's not gonna, we get angry. There in your note sheet, I put a couple of scriptures from Luke chapter four, a little bit of context. Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. And essentially, he's talking about how God works in the unexpected, particularly when people have hardened their hearts to him. And so Jesus is going to refer to both the prophet Elijah and the prophet Elisha in this account of Naaman and how God works in the unexpected. And this is the response of the people. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up and drove him out of the town and they took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. This is our pride and anger. And so again, this is why we need humility. Because humility opens our eyes to a much bigger God. Humility opens our eyes to a much more powerful Jesus. Humility opens our eyes to a much more beautiful work of transformation. Because when we look throughout our own lives and when we look at the example of Scripture of those that came before us, we often see that God did his greatest work through the most unexpected and unconventional methods. And so a couple of examples I want to share with you. Think of the work that God did through Moses. Now think of how Moses' story started, that he was adopted into the most powerful empire on earth at the time. And yet, as a flawed human being, his anger got the best of him, and he committed murder and fled and lost it all. And then Moses goes into a self-imposed exile and chooses to be nothing for 40 years. And it's at that point that God begins his work. As we look at chapter 2 of Joshua, see, the nation of Israel was in a very precarious situation 
as it came to claiming the promised land God had given them. They had some vehement enemies in the Canaanite nation. And again, things could go wrong for them very, very quickly. And so as spies go into the city to protect them, to protect the movement of God, who does God use? Well, he uses a woman named Rahab, who is not only a Canaanite, meaning an enemy to his people, but a prostitute. And because she was a prostitute, she could hide these spies because it would not seem weird or out of the ordinary for men to be coming and going from her quarters. And yet, Rahab's life was transformed through this, so much so that she is now part of the bloodline of Jesus himself. We recently celebrated Christmas, and if you were here for our Christmas Eve services, Michael beautifully shared the account of Mary, how the long-awaited Messiah, the king that Israel had been waiting for, was gonna be born through an unassuming young woman from a very nothing town. But even though the Messiah was gonna be born through her, the beginning of Jesus' story starts with Mary and Joseph having to suffer through scandal and rejection and hardship. See, let's now apply this to your life. I don't need you to raise your hand, but I'm pretty sure that just about each of you would say that as you look back on your life, there have either been short seasons or long periods that have not gone according to plan, right? But if we go one step further, if you honestly reflect, and as I present this question, maybe you need to take some time later today and allow the Lord to lead your reflection. There are many of you here that would say that it was through the unexpected that I experienced my deepest periods of growth. That it was through the unexpected that I experienced my most beautiful joys. There are many of you here that would say, either looking back or right now, I have never hurt more in my life, but I have also never experienced the love in Jesus more clearly either. There are many of you here that would say, I was I'd never been in a darker place, but, that had, but I have also never experienced my deepest relationships getting stronger, whether it's family or friends. There are many of you that would say, I walked into a life group completely broken, scared of sharing how broken I am, and I walked out with unshakable friendships. There are many of you here that said, I lost everything, and it hurt, and it still hurts. I lost the relationships. I lost the job. I lost the health. I lost the resources. I lost everything that I thought gave me value and worth. And it's in that loss that I experienced that I have beautiful worth in the work of Jesus. There are many of us here that if we honestly reflect would say that the unexpected led me to true transformation. There in Yenochi, N.T. Wright, a very famous New Testament scholar, puts it this way. As he talks about the expectations of Jesus, the Messiah, but this applies to us as well, he writes that they were looking for a builder to construct the home that they thought they wanted. 
But Jesus was the architect coming with a new plan that would give them everything they needed, but within quite a new framework. And so again, as we look ahead at a new year, at a new decade, we will experience transformation. We will experience substantial growth when we develop the beautiful strength of humility to let go and let God be in control. And there are many ways to shift our focus from the plan to the character of Jesus. But I want to give you one simple one that, again, if you're a longtime Rocky Peaker, I've talked about this many, many times in the past. It's something I heard from a pastor named Louis Giglio in Atlanta many years ago, and I still come back to this often in my own life, and that's by spending time in the Psalms. The idea specifically is to take one psalm a day, maybe listen to it or read through it, and to focus in on one way in which the psalm describes the character of God, whether it's a phrase or a specific word. In preparation of this, I was spending time in Psalm chapter 2, and it refers to God as the one who is enthroned as our king. And as you do that, write it down. Dwell on it. Why is that characteristic jumping out at you? And what is God trying to teach you through his word about who he is? And so with that, what I want to do is I want to invite the worship team to come on out as we close our service with one last song, as this is the time when our ushers are going to come forward to receive our tithes, our gifts, our offerings. This is an opportunity for us to do business with God. For some of us, this may need to be a time in which we confess and we experience restoration through repentance and say, God, I have not given you control in this area and I'm going to let go. For some of us, maybe we need to be honest and say, God, I have been wrestling control out of your hands in this area, and while I want to give you, I don't know how. I'm afraid to, and we need his comfort and peace. For some of us, maybe we need to celebrate. Maybe this time is for us to say, God, I let go of control in this area, and it was and still is one of the scariest things I've ever done in my life, but I have experienced you and your beauty in such a new way that I want to say thank you. Regardless of what it is, let this be a time in which you get to commune with your king. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, you are in control now we know that there is one true God who loves us, who desires an epic transformation out of us, and we submit to your leadership. And so as we sing this final song, let it be a beautiful declaration as we think these powerful words that what the enemy meant for evil, you use for good, which is a declaration that you are in control that you can take even the darkest of situations and bring good and light out of it. And so we thank you for these words which will encourage us, which will inspire us, which will empower us. But more importantly, we thank you for your word which will transform us. And it's in your name we all say amen. Let's stand together.